0: Let's see. 11% of all global CO2 emissions are during the, the construction phase of buildings. Another 28% of global CO2 is produced during the energy use phase, and that doesn't even account for the actual end of life because that's normally not measured. And so, what we're really trying to do is not is address all three facets of that: reduce the that embedded embodied carbon in that construction phase by only by reducing the amount of waste produced during construction as well as in the future, moving to a more, more optimized formulation that allows us to further bring that down.
1: This is the Grin and Grind podcast, episode 10. Today, we have on Sam Rubin of Mighty Buildings, a 3D-printed housing construction company looking to make buildings more sustainable, cheaper, and readily available. This is a great episode full of information on what the future of housing looks like and how we can solve many of the issues that plague the current industry. This is the Green and Grind podcast, the show where we talk about careers and entrepreneurship in sustainability. I'll ask my guests about their industry, how they got there, and what you can do to be successful in the sustainability space and in life. All right, well, welcome, Sam. Great to have you on. So you are a chief sustainability officer for Mighty Buildings, a San Francisco-based construction tech company using 3D printing to make buildings could you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what a chief sustainability officer for a construction tech company does
0: i I can and one quick note we are now officially oakland based not san francisco based okay (laughs) Uh, just just one one little note but yeah no it's uh it's been a really really great journey uh launching mighty buildings and kind of helping bring 3d printing into the construction sector so my background is um I did a dual degree, MBA MPA, so public as well as business administration, with a focus on sustainability, at Presidio Graduate School, which is one of the first programs in the world to center the entire curriculum around sustainability and systems thinking. Hmm. Um, and during my time there, I did I, my capstone. We actually my team developed a concept for a business that would take clean, virgin, uncontaminated plastic hospital waste and convert it into 3D printer filament. Um, because there's a huge issue with uh, virgin plastic going straight to landfill from hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not just that. It. It's around the country, and around the world. So we, one of my teammates at the time was an a, uh, ER nurse. And so she had some particular insights into that. And so my, my love of 3D printing itself really goes back to a Star Trek. Uh, when I first yes. realized that uh, replicators were just atomic or molecular level 3D printing with energy modulation. <laughs> um, yes, I am a giant nerd. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, so that's something that to me has always been fascinating, like this idea of how we as humans can find ways to take these building blocks and put them together in new and, and unique ways that allow us to do things we couldn't do before. And so with Mighty Buildings, what we've done is we've developed a unique technology and a unique material that allows us to print using light. So we're not doing Hmm. like, like a lot of the 3d printing companies that are out there are using concrete or mortar or mortars. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, what they're actually doing is 3d printing the formwork and then still having to manually install rebar pour aggregate into, Mm -hmm. into there to actually get up to code. What we've done is we've approached it from a completely different uh, direction. So. No, none of the four founders are actually from the construction industry, so we didn't know what we're not supposed to be able to do. So we did it.
1: <laughs> um, but That's probably a little advantage, a little bit then.
0: <laughs> yeah, being able to bring your billionaire's bring mind is is, mm-hmm. is amazing. Um, but obviously, a lot of a lot of input from industry players, from regulators, um, because we we believe in the idea of disruption through collaboration. So for us, it's been really important to be engaging. Uh, with uh, customers, so homeowners as well as developers and builders, um, city regulators, state regulators, various standardization bodies, um, all before we ever launched out Stealth Mode this past August. So we actually were originally founded in August 2017 and spent three years in Stealth Mode, avoiding publicity, uh, while we really focused on lining everything up and getting getting it right. And so what we've done is we've, the material is it's called a thermoset composite. So it's similar to, say, uh, Corian by DuPont, which is a material that's been used in ho- homes as like countertops and cladding since the 1960s. And what we've done is we've created a unique variation of a uh, formulation of that type of material that allows us to cure it using light. So what that means is that as it comes out of the nozzle, it gets hit with ultraviolet light, which starts the hardening process. And so what that does is it opens up new opportunities in design. By enabling freeform architecture very easily, but also allows us to have a zero waste production uh, process, which is is really important. So we're able to eliminate the three to five pounds per square foot that goes to landfill in a traditional build. And so our mission is to build beautiful, affordable, and sustainable housing using 3D printing and robotic automation. And so that's um, when it came time to pick my title. It was really important for me that we were we were planting a stake in the ground as to just how important sustainability was to us as a company. Um, and how core it is to who we are and how we operate. And so that's why it was really important, even though my areas of, of responsibility span certification, compliance, partnerships, along with sustainability, that we really put sustainability front and center in that title. Because um, that really speaks to how how important it is to us as a company and how core it is to how we view the world and view what we're doing.
1: Yeah, that, that's really interesting about the material. It, it's very different from what you see from other 3D printed companies that use cement to create the form work um one thing that kind of comes to mind like about those is that you know they use the cement uh to create the you know the interior walls and so if you like try to renovate in the future i'm sure that makes it a lot tougher to um you know make a change to that structure uh you, you kind of t- touched on this but maybe you could elaborate some more on what are some of the other sustainability features that come with 3d printing and and, and also your product you mentioned waste reduction and how there's three to five pounds of waste per square foot uh, with a traditional mm-hmm. build, which is tons, <laughs> literally. So that's just like, that's just a wild statistic to me.
0: Yeah, in a traditional build, um, it's roughly about three to five pounds per square foot that goes to landfill uh, from a traditional construction. And so what we're able to do by using 3D printing and be, with our robotic post-processing that allows us to capture the waste uh, is that we're actually able to reduce the amount of waste to less than 0.02% um, and so we're eliminating a couple tons of uh, of CO2e per per building just just from the waste that we're not creating um, and so that's something we're actually working on starting to work on with the industry is cuz when you do life cycle assessments with construction they generally only report the waste in terms of volume they don't add doesn't like most lc um, life cycle assessment software in the States doesn't actually dive into what the waste is made of in order to get to that real uh, CO2E number so you can mm-hmm. really do a global warming potential comparison. So that's actually something that we're starting to work on on the regulatory side um, to help really change how the, uh, the industry measures that because we think it's really important if we're gonna really going to be doing apples to apples comparisons of the impact of some of these different technologies that we're, we're getting down to that level of granularity. Um, obviously, that gets, it makes things more difficult in the reporting process. But again, you only only what measures matters, as they say. And so, if we're not actually effectively measuring that waste and its impact, mm-hmm. then we're not ever going to effectively deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's, uh, I mean that's that's a huge number for traditional, um, you know, on, on a on a per square foot yeah. basis. Well, and, well think about it, it. it. When you've yeah.
0: got you getting these two by four and six foot, eight foot, ten foot, twelve foot mm-hmm. lengths or whatever, but say you only need nine feet. That's a foot of that's that's a two by four. Uh, so you've got a extra foot of waste that you're not going to be able to reuse and so that's one of those issues with subtractive manufacturing is that you start with something and then you're you're reducing it further but that that waste is waste. I mean it's very hard to find ways to reuse small pieces uh, And so with 3D printing what we're really able to do is use just print exactly what's needed and then one of the cool things about our material versus say concrete is that even though it's incredibly strong, it's still soft enough that we can mill the certain mill the uh, material with CNC heads that are used for soft metals like aluminum and copper. So that means that we're able to trim it or to mill it down, get a smooth stone like finish, leave the raw printed finish that some people really love or opening up uh, versatility of design to make do things like make it look like brickwork or make it look like siding. So mm-hmm. it really opens up a lot of uh, opportunities in matching existing aesthetics while also introducing whole new aesthetics. And in doing that, we can then capture use vacuums to capture that waste and reuse that as filler in new material.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's a huge cost savings to you. Um you know, you're using all of what you're purchasing. and It's great. They're able to recapture all that um, excess material. Um, so with that uh, material composite, are you printing the walls and the roof with that as well? So
0: we have that ability right now. The units that we're del- delivering currently, it's the uh, curved wall back wall that you see mm-hmm. on those design, that's 3d printed. Uh, we are planning, expanding the amount of that um, part of that's the certification process and building uh, official approval. And then we're also launching what we call the Mighty Kit system, which is a new panel system that the first deployment is a line of houses uh, designed by EYRC architects in Los Angeles called the Mighty House. And Yeah, so with that system,
1: yeah I've actually worked with them. Yeah, oh, they're, cool. they're really great yeah. to work oh, with. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're a great
0: team. And uh, as you know, one of the leading modern architecture des- uh, firms in the country. And so it's been a really, really wonderful opportunity to work with them and see what they've been able to come up with as far as the application of this technology. And so the cool thing with this new panel system not only does it open up more uh, floor plan op- options for our direct to consumer business but it really allows us to take that next step into our b2b business cuz obviously as you know sustainability is not just environmental it's about social in- that what's that social impact as well and the housing crisis is one of the big reasons we exist is the fact that the world just needs a better way to build if we're going to get all the housing units that we need in order to ensure that we're not dealing with the one in three people that are targeted to be impacted by scarcity globally uh, by 2025. That's one, over one and a half billion people. Wow. And so what, what that means is that we need a better, have to have that social impact too. And to get all those units out there, it's amazing going direct to consumer and we love providing a turnkey solutions to, to the homeowners we do work with. But our vision has always been to be a tool for industry. Because where we're going to have impact and really be able to really change how the world builds in terms of the environmental impact, in terms of social impact, is by putting our technology in the hands of builders and developers who are deploying units 20, 50, 100, 1,000 units at a time, because that's where we begin to have real impact on the amount of housing. Um, And one of the things I'm also really excited in that regard is the new fiber reinforced version of the material that we've developed that we're going to be using to step into the multifamily space, uh, likely starting next year. So really being able to go into uh, the three to five story low rise buildings and really unlock that urban infill density as another opportunity, along with uh, kind of your more suburban housing styles.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's that's cool. Yeah. Getting into that. So that, so that low rise structure there. Um, So how does the, the insulating properties um, compare to like, say other, like, you know, like a concrete form or, or, you know, a traditional stick build? So
0: our material by nature is about four times more insulating than concrete. And as a part of our process, what we've done, we do is we, so we print the hollow structure. Um, and then that goes to our, our robotic finishing cell where we're, we first we do a 3D scan to make sure that the printed object matches the digital file is based on. And that what that also does is create a digital model of the physical object itself to create the tool paths for that milling I mentioned, but also to allow us to pour foam, uh, foam insulation into the interior of that. In order to increase that that R value. So with the our current units, we're currently delivering a six-inch wall has an R value of 21, and so we're actually looking at improving that even further, and potentially down the road getting into R 40s, so that we can be super high efficiency. But with the new money kit system that we're going, we're actually going to begin delivering zero net energy houses uh, this year, uh, toward later this year once that goes through finish it goes through the uh, the permitting process. And so that's something we're really excited about. Because, uh, obviously, energy efficiency is a huge part of it. And one of the big issues with, uh, as you may, may or may not know, California was all set to achieve true net zero net energy requirements this year. Mm-hmm. Or, well, actually, last year.
1: Yeah, but, 20, the, yeah the, the last code iteration, residential. Okay.
0: But, what they, but they stopped short. They stopped at only requiring uh, PV, so photovoltaic and solar. And the reason for that was that the state has a cost-effectiveness test. So if you're gonna mandate something like battery storage, like, or like solar, it has to be cost-effective. And unfortunately, to date, batteries still aren't. I mean, there's great hope that mm-hmm. that will that that, happen in the next year or two. Um, so what's really exciting about what we're doing is because of our ability to produce uh, units for 45% less cost than equivalent uh, quality units, we're actually able to bring deliver that sooner while still providing over cost savings against traditional construction. Um, because we can convert those cost savings apply that to the battery cost and still be uh, less than a, a standard home
1: oh, oh oh wow yeah you can you so you can use the cost effectiveness to offset uh the battery price and add that in
0: exactly so we're looking at being able to do zero waste production deliver zero net energy true zero net energy homes by combining solar and battery storage with them and we've committed to being carbon neutral by 2028. Um, And so that's something. So that's part of our roadmap. And we already have begun developing a formula, uh, more sustainable formulations that incorporate higher levels of biologically derived uh, polymer. More importantly, reducing the amount of polymer versus Mm -hmm. the amount of filler using recycled uh, content for uh, for the filler. And so we've got some really, really exciting things coming down the pipeline uh, to help us get there, because it's I mean, the industry, the construction industry. Let's see. Eleven percent of all global CO2 emissions are during the, the construction phase of buildings. Another twenty-eight percent of global CO2 is produced during the energy use phase, and that doesn't even account for the actual end of life because that's normally not measured. And so, what we're really trying to do is not is address all three facets of that: reduce the that embedded embodied carbon in that construction phase by only by reducing the amount of waste produced during construction as well as in the future, moving to a more more optimized formulation that allows us to further bring that down. And we'll look at things like what might carbon capture coatings and things like that look like. So we're excited about some of the new technologies in the pipeline. And then obviously that energy efficiency during the building use uh, phase is crucial um, to really having an impact on global CO2. And as it is our hope to that we'll start getting more and more measurements of that waste uh, end-of-life aspect as well, we've really designed our units to be either – reusable or recyclable. So we're looking at things like uh, pyrolysis as a way to do conversion to clean energy, um, but also other opportunities. Like right now we have the ability to grind up the material and we use it as filler in our own. Uh, we're looking at other possibilities such as using as additives for roadways and things like that. Uh, Cause there's a lot of evidence that the addition of polymeric materials really strengthen and improve the durability of roads, um, which is a hu- has huge potential for uh, reducing the embodied carbon over the lifetime of, of, of roads and other use cases. And then we're also looking at further down the line, like what's it look like to do, say, enzymatic or biological de- or uh, bacterial degradation? Because there's some really, really cool technologies that are just now kind of hmm. getting started within a couple of years, within five to ten years, have a chance to be mainstream. So that's why even though our units aren't going to be needed to be replaced for 20, 30, 50 or more years. Uh, we're already now thinking about what what will that look like? And how do we make sure mm-hmm. that we're we're avoiding a landfill as much as possible and really making sure that we're not contrib- contributing to the problem down the line.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing. I mean you're covering everything which is so important. And you know, I've worked in the construction industry for the last, you know, seven years and you know, I've been to the construction sites and I, I see firsthand, you know, especially during renovations, like anything that they tear out, I mean, you know, just just, just goes away. And um, yeah, they, just the amount of construction waste you, you see on site, it's, you know, it, it's quite a bit. And then also, yeah, to your point about the design that, you know, um, sometimes we would design systems that maybe use more materials because they are more energy efficient uh, because that it it had a higher energy savings overall over its uh lifespan um but if you just watch like HGTV and any res- renovation shows it gives me like i get i get like little yeah. heartaches every time they do demo day cuz like they they salvage nothing and it's the, there could be so, so many better ways to to reuse those materials so that's great you're addressing a lot yeah. of those uh key components
0: yeah well i mean it really goes to this idea that there is such a thing as a way like we have this idea. That, oh, well it, well, it just goes away. But but where away is somewhere like where where is that going? Like is it Atlanta? like and it, and it to me, it's also like look, having done study economics in undergrad. Like for me, it's it's ineff- it's incredibly inefficient from an economic standpoint. I mean, one of the things that I love thinking about is industrial ecology and the idea of industrial symbiosis and this idea that something if something is a waste, that means it's an inefficiency in your system. Because it means that, that's some that's material you're paying for that you're not using, or that you're otherwise mm-hmm. there's some something that's inefficient that's occurring. I mean, and a lot of times when I think about sustainability, it really does boil down to operational efficiency. Uh, although, we can, we can have a whole another conversation about whether we should be using the word sustainability versus resilience and regeneration. Mm-hmm. But that's that's another that <laughs> maybe we can get there before on this one. But uh, but so yeah, so it's really that idea of understanding where. If something's a waste, that means we're, we're not being creative enough. We're not being thinking about the possible revenue streams that it can, can create. Um, so that's one of the things that we're, we're interested too. is that as we're out there, we're talking to companies that might have pre-consumer waste that they currently go to landfill, that we might be able to give them an opportunity for an improved uh, end of life uh, use case where it becomes an input in our process. So that's these are the types of things that we're looking at. What are those opportunities to avoid using virgin material? What are those opportunities for avoid calling something waste and instead identify what are those potential further use cases that it could be an input for? And I think that's that's a really important way to think about it. And it kind of gets the idea of a circular economy and really the idea of cradle to cradle. Uh, But even if not fully circular, at least a closed loop system. Where it may be going from you, like there's some great examples in like Denmark, where you've got like breweries and electric generation and all this stuff sharing heat and sharing waste products and becoming inputs, and there's there's some really cool stuff. And so I'm hoping more and more people begin to think about it in those terms of how what's what's an industrial ecosystem look like that's that's actually efficient um, and really thinking about uh, regeneration and resilience. Um, since yeah. status quo, we we can't sustain the status quo. It doesn't work.
1: No, yeah it, it, that's kind of a definitely a trend that you st- start to see. it's like um if if you have to go through recycle or if you have to go to a landfill, it's a design flaw like or the system <laughs> well, yeah. it, it's, it's not designed properly and you kind of mentioned Denmark inter- you know talk about some of the industrial ecology there I actually had a friend who studied in Denmark uh, studied industrial ecology nice. there um but all the what they're learning was research based on the us. It was just never implemented <laughs> here in the right. US, <laughs> but so, but they just took all the information and just ran with it, uh, basically. And, um, but yeah, I mean, industrial oncology is, is very interesting and there's a lot of, a lot we can learn from nature on how to, um, have more efficient systems.
0: Yeah, no. And it's, to me, that's, it's really about how do we frame it? Because again, it's about shifting people's mindsets. This, I, I mean, part of that goes back like, what is a way? So, we, like, the fact that we even think there isn't a is way is something that we have to shift. And so it's really, it's about education. And and then you get issues like, oh, I, but I'm doing, I'm recycling. And then you discover, oh, no, that's just been piling up on the docks in China. Okay. Um, because, like, half the stuff that we think recycled, got recycled just never got recycled. And, and then it's about those broader infrastructure and, like, the systems in place as well. And so that's why, for us, it's really been important to not just do what we do in a vacuum. And to really be doing that engagement, I mean, that's why when it comes to introducing 3D printing into the construction space, I mean, as, as you, you and your listeners well know, I mean, building codes are written in blood. I mean, they, they exist because things went wrong and people got hurt and people died. So for us, it's really, really important that we're doing everything we can to demonstrate the safety of what we're doing, not only for our technology, but also to create frameworks for the broader industry. Because if there's another 3D printing company out there that builds a house and something goes wrong... That's not just going to hurt them. That's going to set the entire technology back by decades, potentially, at a time when we can't afford that. And so to that end, we've been working really closely with a UL, which is Underwriters Laboratories, one of the oldest and largest third-party certifying agencies. Um, and the reason we chose them as our evaluation partner is that not only have they been working in building life safety for over 100 years, but they also have some of the world's leading experts in additive manufacturing which uh, made them uniquely situated to really understand what we're doing and then understand what's it mean to test it against the building code. So as a result of that, uh, of the creation of our evaluation report, they actually created a new standard, UL 3401, for the use of 3D printing in construction. And that has been since added as a series of adoptable appendices. I think it's 103.1, 1041, 1051, maybe, to the uh, 2021 International Residential Code. So we're really proud of our, our role in helping get 3D printing into the building code um, pretty quickly. And additionally, we're also working with ASTM and others on the development of their new standards. Because again, we think it's really, really important that uh, as someone who's bringing new technology into the space that we're also working with that regulatory structure to help make sure there's space for that innovation and also to do everything we can to demonstrate that, that compliance. And, the, and I know that's not directly sustainability, folks, but where that does come circles back to sustainability is the fact that we need to be doing this, that we're doing the same thing on the sustainability side. So we've been, we we actually have a, um, been talking with like the U, um, US Green Building Council and others who are involved in the environmental product declaration process for construction materials. Uh, going back to what I was saying about waste. I think it's really it's really important for us that as an industry we're properly measuring that, and so we're 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 starting to have those conversations, start to create that space. Um, that's why it's been great here uh, that like SASB is doing some wonderful stuff on the construction sector, um, and I think there's some real opportunities, particularly as we're beginning to see more and more consolidation within the uh, reporting space. But that's also why we, from early on, decided to incorporate an LCA into our design, not just into let's design it and then do an LCA, but oh. Let's actually get an LCA that we run design ideas through and new formulation ideas through at the very beginning. Because that's how you really design for sustainability is by not having it as an afterthought, but by having it baked into the process from the beginning and mm-hmm. make sure you're, you're using the right tools to measure that at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah, especially if I'm sure for uh, the growth, um, having some of that regulatory backup is important because I'm sure you know I've worked with building code officials and it's very by the book you know oh, yeah. anything new sc- is is scary you know and so it's it's building building that comfort with that and I also see uh y- your point about um you know you know you know the bo- you know all boats rise with the tide right with you know 3D printing is it it's you know um you want to make sure that people feel comfortable you know buying 3d printed buildings and it and, and are okay with with you know with the technology in, in the future so uh right now um you guys are building um you know what's, what's the size of of buildings that you're you're constructing right now
0: yeah so the units we're currently delivering we've got a couple models are accessory dwelling units so uh, for those listeners aren't familiar, accessory dwelling unit is a technical term for a backyard apartment or a granny flat um, or an in-law apartment. All these are basically, idea of a small apartment, you drop in your backyard. Uh, you can rent it. You can use it as extra space. And so we chose that as our initial market because the state of California made a lot of changes in state laws starting in 2017 to make them easy to permit. And they're also, as I mentioned before, our vision has always been to be a tool for industry. And ADUs, because of their smaller sizes, tend to be too expensive in terms of overhead for bigger builders and developers to, to build. So it was a great chance for us to demonstrate the viability of the technology, show the viability within the marketplace um, without actually competing against these builders who are now starting to sign uh, partner with on build, building uh, larger developments. And so the units we're delivering currently are range, we've got a Mighty Studio, which is a 350 square foot studio apartment, complete with uh, living area, kitchen, bathroom, washer dryer, um, and th- then we also have the Mighty Duo, uh, the Duo B, which is a one- or two-bedroom, we have two different floor plans for that, one- or two-bedroom apartment that's 700 square feet. And with the new Mighty Kit system that we're going to be introducing later this year, we'll be increasing the range to go up as large as a three-bedroom, two-bath, uh, just under 1,500 square feet for a single-family home, though for developers, we are also offering the ability to create even larger footprints uh, for, um, for projects where there's volume. And we're actually—I'm not sure if I'm, how much I'm allowed to talk about it—but we do will be uh, uh, signing a contract for the world's first 3D printed zero net energy community. And that'll be uh, breaking ground in Southern California, uh, second half of this year, most likely.
1: Okay. Well, we will have to look out for that because that sounds yeah really interesting. Okay. So you you talk about um, how you're kind of working to progress towards kind of being uh, net zero carbon and and working towards, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, closed loop systems, um, you know, what, what are maybe some, some things right now, uh, with 3d printers that are, uh, you know, limitations that you just, um, you know, that you have with, with the technology right now that you're, you're working on.
0: Yeah. I mean, for, for us, a lot of it is that a lot of these sustainable technologies are just coming online. And so, part of it is like even if we might find the perfect technology, how do we scale it? What's and what's what's that look like? Uh, particularly if it's something that's not that's an input or something that's one of our uh, supply that's in the supply chain rather than something that we're active that's actively in our wheelhouse. So that's definitely been one of the big challenges. But and that's but why it's been wonderful to see companies like BASF and others really stepping up in their commitment to carbon neutrality, uh, because that that only benefits us as part, in terms of our supply chain. But it's also about Doing, doing the work and looking into, well, if that's like into more sustainable and biologically based materials now, okay, well, if they're just being developed, what's, what's that, how's that going to shift in cost? Because obviously, when we're thinking about sustainability, again, it goes back to that balancing people, plan and profit. So it's really into all three. And so if we have an incredibly green material, but it's so expensive that it makes it so expensive that only a few people can buy it, is that really our most sustainable option? Or might we be more uh, better served in the near term by going with a slightly less environmentally sustainable option that's gonna have broader uptake because of the lower price point that it provides. And so these are the things that we're, we're wrestling with and like what's it look like to make sure that we are balancing people planet, and, and profit all accordingly. Um, because you can have the greenest, most socially conscious company in the world, but if you're not making any money or if your products are too expensive for that no one can afford them except for a select few, you're not really going to have the sustainable impact that that we need at the scale we need uh, right now. Um, and that's also one of the reasons I'm excited about all the cool stuff that's happening in the space more broadly, because it's a big enough problem that I think it really is an all hands on deck situation.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that's kind of where maybe the, the life cycle assessments come in that, you know, you don't want to go to a material that's more greener, but more expensive. And then you say, for example, can't put as much PV or, 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 or something, you know, something as a, as a cough upset. Right. And well, then it's actually, you know, worse, you know, from a life cycle assessments, you know, standpoint. So it's exactly. definitely a balance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, and, and, and that's where the systems thinking comes in as well. It's like, what's it, what's it look like to not, because if you're just looking at one discrete piece at a time of, of, a, of the process, then you might come up with great solutions for that piece. But as you were mentioning, like what are the unintended consequences on the other pieces that you're working on? So it's about maintaining that systems view uh, throughout the process, and that's where the LCA plays a huge role, particularly by incorporating it up front, is it lets us look at it, and, and also the fact that we're not just doing a cradle-to-gate. Like, to me, doing cradle-to-gate's a bit of a cop-out in terms of life lifecycle assessments. I, understandably, sometimes that's all you can do, because uh, depending on the product and depending on what you're doing, you might you don't really have control over the use, like what happens during, during use or what happens to at end of life. But we feel to really be good stewards and to really be understanding things properly, we have to be looking at cradle to cradle or cradle to grave in that assessment, and understanding that full life cycle from the beginning to optimize it for that impact over its entire life cycle. And that that and thinking about it. And then it's not just okay. How does all the pieces of the building interact together? Okay, well, how's that interact with the electrical system? Like because we're here in California. So far, we're just delivering to California, but we're really excited to expand. Um, into other states and other countries almost potentially as soon as next year. And so this is something we're really interested in. It's like, and that's part of why we started in California, is that California is one of the most difficult and uh, and stringent building codes. So by building here, it makes it easy to go to other other states. But California is also ahead of the curve in terms of energy efficiency requirements. In term so there if we built to the California market, all of a sudden when we step outside of California, we're a game changer in in a way that that we might not be that we're like in California, We're we're already going beyond the the regulations by accelerating the adoption of of true zero net energy. But you take us into a state that's like, say, West Virginia, where there's coal, where everything's coal powered. And all of a sudden that zero net energy is huge um, in a way that honestly, if we're building here in the Bay where we've got 100 percent renewable energy is easily accessible, it it might not that sustainability impact might not be as as great. But we're but it's also showing how sustainable building can have greater economic returns. I mean, we're starting to see uh, homeowners and home buyers and renters putting a premium on greener building, on healthier building. Uh, we're seeing mm-hmm. development starting to get the opportunity to qualify for things like uh, property assessed uh, clean energy financing, which can help reduce that upfront cost for improved sustainability in new construction, uh, is, which is one of the new deployments of that of PACE uh, financing that we're starting to see, which is really exciting. Because so far, tra- traditionally it's been normally uh, using, property you're basically putting on your property tax bill uh, to pay for changes like uh deep energy retrofits or solar or things like that now that's beginning to expand be expanded into new construction too and what's it look like to open up opportunities for comparing against a traditional baseline house and be able to demonstrate that those sustainability gains
1: mm-hmm. yeah you are definitely see more benefits especially in like the wellness space which is probably going to pick up and you know like the well certification yep um you know, definitely yeah, living is, building is it. challenge
0: so fit well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some some great ones there, and, and it's been wonderful to see it, mm-hmm. those really coming to the fore and being starting starting to take really seriously.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys are get somewhat have an advantage when you talk about some of this integration with say the electrical system, different technology, and, and reducing waste because you do kind of have a vertical process that you have more control. Um, you know, pretty much in the whole construction of the building, where exactly. instead of yeah. traditionally. Everyone's just getting the pieces, you know, sent together, and er- everything's pretty, you know, kind of disparate. And you know, it, it's much harder to, you know, kind of control that whole whole process. And so that's kind of yeah. advantage you have to, you know, control those waste streams and the energy input when you when you have control of the whole v- vertical integration, you know, you know, in the building.
0: Yeah, and and to that end, our vision really is a distributed production network because it doesn't necessarily make sense to export California costs to other states. And it also doesn't make sense to be setting up hundred like a long distance away from where your labor force is, a long distance away from where the housing demand is. so one of the really cool things because we're using 3d printing and robotics, with one start with a scaled factory, we can generate one we're gonna be able to generate one point two million square feet of production out of fifty thousand square feet of production floor. So what that means is that not only can we, like we have the opportunity to set up an existing warehouse space. I mean, where we are in Oakland is an old Pete's Coffee warehouse. Uh, it's seventy-nine thousand square feet, but like that includes all of our offices and storage, and and so that's something that to me is really excited because of that ability we can we don't have to build million square foot bespoke factories mm. far, like out in rural or semi-rural areas. Mm-hmm. We can use existing warehouse space in industrial air centers near demand, like where we are in Oakland. So that not only are we producing unit uh, housing units for a local market we creating jobs for that market, because one of the biggest issues in construction right now is the lack of skilled labor. I mean, and that's really kind of one of the impetuses for what we're doing is that we're not trying to eliminate jobs. What we're really what we're trying to do is leverage 21st century technology to, to allow the existing labor force to do more. And at the end of the day, it's our hope to actually create more work overall, but it'll be easier and safer work on a per unit basis. And because I was talking to uh, Eric Holt, who's a professor at the University of Denver Burns School of Construction Management. And he was mentioning there's something like 400,000 construction jobs that are open today that no one's taking. And so by bringing 20, 3D printing and robotics back into it uh, or into the industry, it's our hope that people who might now go into programming because they want to work with technology, but in the past would have gone into construction, will once again come into the, in, into the construction industry uh, because we need them. Um, and we want to make sure that they have a chance to work with the, the latest technology uh, when they, in doing so. And so that's something that is really exciting for me, because that means that we're reducing those costs associated with, with those added logistics of shipping materials all over the, the country and the world. We're sh- uh, impacting the carbon output of that as well, because we're able to consolidate by having that distributed production. We're greatly reducing those overroad uh, transport out- uh, requirements. And we're looking at things like what, what's it going to look like to partner with uh, electric uh, semi-companies or what's it going to look like to partner with those those companies that are out there that are trying to change the uh, the supply chain infrastructure. And that's something we're really excited about too, is, is the is to tap into those those partnerships and really take advantage of some of the amazing ingenuity that's coming to, coming to bear on a number of industries that we're connected to. Because that's one of the really cool things about housing and particularly sustainability in housing, is that it's at the intersection of so many key intractable problems and so many key to industries that are all connected to this, that if we can begin to impact the, our supply chain, we're, we're really gonna be doing some positive things along with what we're delivering to the customers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a lot, lot of opportunity there. And coach, you brought about the shortage of, of workers. I, I think it's very prevalent in California. That's just yeah. like there's, there's, you know, part of the reason project prices and costs are higher is because there's just not enough workers to cover all the projects that, that want to get built and say, and say LA. Um, And you talk about, you know, worker safety. Another thing too, um, that I noticed is that you know, when you're, when you're in construction, you have to drive to the project, wherever that is. And if you're in LA and you might have to be driving two hours away and sometimes, you know, some of the site managers have to stay at a hotel away from their family for the week on site to be the job. And if you're say working somewhere where you, you have a set distance for your factory and you're going to that, you know, you're not having to be taken away from your family during, you know, the work week, which I think is good. And it's less, less commuting time too. So.
0: And, and it also creates opportunities for greater quality control, uh, reduced environmental impacts, the opportunity to be building 24 hours a day to get those units out there, not having to shut down overnight because of uh, noise issues. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of positives to taking prefab and then combining it with 3d printing because prefab, I mean, has had an amazing promise time and time and time again mm-hmm. i mean i think uh, i was the first i believe the first prefabricated building to come over to the u.s into the u.s was like in the seventy 70- like the 1600s i think it was like a fishing house from uh that got shipped over on by boat from england and like so that's uh, the beginning of the prefab of industry in america was it was back then but obviously then we have we've had a number of uh, false starts it seems like uh the sears mm-hmm. kit homes in the 20s and 30s great and then the depression great they were doing amazing then the depression oh. hit all of a sudden, no one's buying homes. What do you do? Uh, we had at the beginning of this uh, century, we saw saw a rise with Michelle Kaufman Homes and Blue Homes and some of these other companies that were coming to the fore. And then the 2008 crisis hit because. And the issue has been that traditional prefab requires really high fixed overhead costs because you're usually needing hundreds of thousands or a million square feet facility to be productive. You're dealing with a fixed labor force where you're you're carrying that no matter what no what so. With 3D printing, as I mentioned, we can greatly reduce the size of the of the facility required, uh, without while still increasing the overall throughput, um, possible, and we're able to ramp up or ramp down in a way that really accounts for the needs of the of the market at any given time. And then also, particularly in California, I and I actually was presciently saying this at a uh, conference we were at in uh, November of 2018. Uh, it was the Housing Innovation uh, Summit or no, sorry, it was the uh, Innovate Housing uh, event put on by the Turner Center at UC Berkeley and Fannie Mae, uh, but it's on a panel talking about Prefab with uh, like uh, Steve Glenn from Plant Prefab and uh, Rick Holiday from Factory OS. And they asked us the question about the cyclical nature of the housing market and what that's gonna do for Prefab. And I made the comment that I actually think that cyclical nature, at least here in California, is gonna go away, both because we have such great demand from an affordability perspective, but also because of the fires. Now, unbeknownst to me, as I was saying that, the campfire was starting, mm. and it was literally, and I think an hour or two later that I got the uh, first uh, news uh, push notification on my phone saying that it was moving at a thousand plus acres a minute, and it's that's that's that is our new reality. I mean, we're seeing not only are we already short of housing here in California, we're we're losing it um, because of the fires, and they're getting worse and worse every year, and so that's something uh, we're still doing additional testing to establish the fire rating, but we fully anticipate getting a one hour fire rating. There's a decent chance we'll get a two and down the road, we could even get a four, which really opens no up opportunity. Yeah. And that, like, I'm, I was like, don't hold oh. me to that.
1: Okay. But cause that's, that, that, cause that, I mean, that, a two hours hard enough. I mean, two right, hours is like, stairwell, you know,
0: right. Two hours. I like, I do definitely think a two hour is like, we'll probably have a two hour rating on our standard material within a year or so. Um, and part of it's just going through the testing phase. Cause as you may or not, that test takes a long time. It's an expensive test with a lot of backlog. So, um, but we're we're moving there. but that's that's to me what's really exciting. And our material is hydrophobic, so it, like there's a lot of environmental like degradation aspects that aren't as big of an issue for us. And so that's something that I think is going to be really important. And the housing issue is directly tied to the impacts of the fires, the the lack of affordable housing in, in areas where we have in more desirable areas with jobs and everything like the Bay Area means that people are being forced to build further and further out and more and more in those wildlife and in urban interface zones. I mean, that's where most of these destruction of property and loss of life, life in these fires occurs is in areas where that's are the border between human humans and nature. And well, let me take that back. Cause humans are part of nature, uh, but between wilderness and development. And so mm-hmm. if we can come up with solutions that allow for more affordable housing, particularly in, with low rise and other ways of doing it with density, we reduce the need for building houses in places where we shouldn't, frankly, probably shouldn't be building. Um, and but if we are going to build them in those areas, let's do it in a way that's going to be safer and has a better chance of being resilient in the face of the cli- of the impacts of climate change, such as uh, extended fire seasons, such as extended rainy seasons, um, depending where you are, increased snow loads, all these aspects.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I could definitely see what you're saying, that it's important to, um, mm-hmm. you know, address, you know. You know, so these new realities were in with fires and, you know, people are building, you know, more out there. And you hear stories of people driving all the way from Sacramento and to the to the bay, for, you know, for yeah. work. And um, hopefully, you know, with, you know, so this you start to see maybe a trend with some of this more work from home that people probably will start building some of these ADUs in, in their backyard or you know, maybe be rental units or something um, That's, you know, that's the for hope. more mm-hmm. infill, yeah. just because, you know, I know a lot of people have said, well, I need more space if, you know, me and my significant other are working from home, you know, we need a little more space from each other. And if people are talking about, you know, say these ADUs and then maybe, you know, rentals to help with some of this infill and, um, you know, housing demand.
0: Yeah. And there's been some, there's some really cool uh, programs that are, are starting to come to the fore that various cities and nonprofits are, uh, and uh, f- uh, foundations are putting together uh, to make sure that ADUs that everyone gets to benefit from ADUs. So that it's not just the people who can uh, who who already have money and can afford this drop the money to build one immediately get to benefit. So there's things like allowing people who might be uh, house rich, but income poor to be able to have opportunities for financing, uh, providing breaks for people who then rent them to uh, teachers and firefighters and those who can't really, who serve our communities, we can't live in them more and more. And so that's why initially we're focused on the missing middle. So those people who don't mm-hmm. qualify for subsidized housing, but also don't make enough to necessarily be able to afford to own or rent outright in a lot of our communities like those firefighters, like the teachers, and then having that ability to then go up market or down market. Because at the end of the day, what we're really offering is a design and product and market agnostic production as a service platform that allows builders to do more. And that allows us to initially we're focused on units that are specific to our designs and the designs that we put forward. but in the future, like we're already working on a Revit plugin to make it really easy for people to design directly with our technology. And so that's where I, think, I get I get even more excited. It's like, what's it look like to take a third party design, have the computer automatically convert it into a 3D printable system that we can then deploy. And so that's to me is where it gets really exciting. Cause I mean, that's one of the cool things about housing is that it doesn't look the same. Like, like people, even in communities that have strict architectural standards, there's variation. There's people have their own aesthetics, their own needs, and so to me, what's really exciting about our platform, particularly compared to many of the other 3D printing technologies that are out there in the space, is that versatility and the fact that we have an opportunity to serve the needs of of any given market based on what those needs are, and not, aren't limited by the the nature the, what concrete looks like, for for example. Or uh, and that's why like well, I love what Icon's done, but I think they're going to be hard pressed to get traction outside of the low income housing market. And that's because that's where they started. And now, and whenever anyone hears Icon, like, oh, those are the ones that three D print homeless housing, and so, which is awesome, and they do amazing. It's it's really cool that they're doing it, but it's also that's that's something that we want to avoid as far as being pigeonholed like that to really make sure we have as much opportunity to impact the problem as as possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that variety, I think, is you know, especially in architecture, is you know, very very important to have that capability because you don't want. One thing that looks the same, or if you're building, you know, say like you're talking about this eco you know community and if everything looks exactly the same, there's, you know, there's not a you know a lot of variety and I think in urban planning you need a little little variety in, you know, in structure just for just intrigue and um And
0: and even beyond that, when we're talking about working with builders and developers, we need to be make sure that they don't all end up looking the same because then they're gonna lose their they're designed different differentiators, so that's why. And like a lot, particularly some of the larger builders, they have their pretty defined aesthetics for the most part. And so part of it's making sure that what we're doing is able to produce what they need. And so that's why part we're going back to our founding regularly check in with uh, with pe- people in the industry, whether we're working with them directly or not, uh, just to make sure that as we're continuing to develop and improve, that we're doing so in a way that meets their pain points and not just we th- what we think those pain points are. Because that's one of the big uh, – some uh, kind of one of the, uh, the traps that a lot of startups fall into, is you have a great idea, but you don't – but sometimes people don't take the time to make sure that that great idea matches with what's actually needed in terms of solutions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- they create the solution and then try to fit it into, um, you know, whatever industry they're already in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you – so to the switch gears a little bit. So you said earlier that you um got a master's degree for a, a Presidio and mm-hmm. that was in sustainability management.
0: Yeah, um, so it's uh, so technically it was two it was uh, both okay. a master's it was both an MBA and an MPA. So both okay. a master's and a master's of public administration.
1: Okay. So who so who do you think if someone is you know looking to get you know, do more sustainability and looking into maybe a more advanced degree, who do you think would be suited to getting that degree or, or well suited to that?
0: Any, Absolutely anyone. I mean, to me, that's one of the really was one of the amazing things about the program uh, at Presidio and really about the sustainability space more broadly is that it attracts people from all different industries and from all points in their career. And it really that's one of the things I think one of the real strengths of it, because I was in like – Whereas some business schools it, everyone's from engineering, everyone's from finance or but by ha- like in my class I was coming at that point uh, prior to grad school I'd been working in Interfaith peace building. Uh one of my good friends was an architect. Another friend was a uh, was coming was a bioengineer. Another one was had, was a banker. Um and by bringing all these different viewpoints and like and backgrounds and experiences together, we were really able to come up with unique ideas or like I said my capstone, one of my Friends with a, my teammates with a um, a nurse. We would have never have had that. I even known about that problem uh, with the hospital waste if she wasn't experiencing it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it, to me, it's it's really about it's everyone because we need better, as I said, sustainability. If you want to use that, resilience and regeneration, even better. Uh, but it, we really need people from all industry sector and in all sectors thinking about things differently and coming and really having the imagination to imagine a better way of doing things and. And to be honest, that's that's what gets me up in the morning, is is that human ingenuity, this idea that we as as a species have the ability to change everything by coming up with a new way of doing some something that we never could have thought of until the moment we did, and that's 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 really what what gets me excited. And like it's like ideas like mighty buildings, ideas like new ways of creating polymers using bio biomass. Like there's all these amazing ideas that are coming up every single day, and to me that's. That will. That's what gives me hope. And where. I, and so I don't. Yeah, I don't think you need to have any specific background to want to be more to be getting into sustainability. Um, I think if it's something that interests you and you want to see the world a better way to do things and have that that ability to really think through and even more importantly, what's it look like to make a business case? Because like when I was a sustainability consultant, I almost never talked about sustainability. I talked about operational efficiency. I talked about productivity improvements, uh, improved uh, employee well-being. Um, and I would, and not only would I help them identify solutions, but I would also map out those those impacts to the bottom line. And also there's impacts on the amount of water they're using, their energy use, their transportation, what their CO2, and basically establish a strong business case for why it's a good business decision. And then be like, oh, and by the way, you also have all this added brand value. You also have the all these added positive environmental impacts or social impacts that you also get to talk about. But at the end of the day, if, you, if the business case isn't there, isn't there, it's not a good business decision. It's not a good business decision. Mm-hmm. So I think having people who know their sectors and understand the can, and can bring that into sustainability and in turn to bring sustainability back into them, I think is, is really
1: important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with your point of kind of talk about school and having different people there and, and kind of getting different ideas you talk about the medical medical waste i think that kind of ties into like a really interesting story from like steve jobs and he took like a callig- calligraphy class in college and how that created the fonts that started in, in the the max which before there's never fonts before and because he took that class that now that now that we have you know fonts that it, it yeah, yeah,
0: cross-pollination, particularly, like, to me is so crucial because that's where, like, rarely, like, that's where revolutionary change comes from, is is usually from cross-pollination and cross-exposure between sectors. Because if you're, like, incremental change often comes from people within a sector working together, but it's when you start bringing in ideas from other sectors or and start looking at the world from different perspectives that all whole new opportunities and pathways get opened up.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to kind of tie that in, um, you, you know, like, for example, you've had a lot of different experiences, you know, you worked on EVs, helping develop, develop plans for seaweed farms, mm-hmm. uh, you've done sustainable coaching, um, has that kind of, you know, that variety of experience kind of helped channel your interest into buildings and, you know, through that find, find, find your uh, niche?
0: Definitely. I mean, for, for me, I, I I don't believe in the idea of a traditional career, like where you, like, it's, I, I, I realized pretty early on that I wasn't going to be the type of person that I was going to work 40 years at, at the same job or for the same company. Um, it's just not not how I'm, how I'm wired. And so for me, like, and, and honestly, it goes back, like, my undergrad, I went to a liberal arts college because I knew I wanted that broad exposure. I, do, I double majored in undergrad too. Like, I, I'm the type of person I like having, thinking about things in a lot of different ways. And so, yeah, that definitely has influenced how I got here. I mean, I end up when, when Mighty Buildings came out, and I became part of the founding team because our CEO and CTO had worked with one of my classmates at Presidio on a previous project. Um, and so when they were looking for someone to help with sustainability and market research and help flesh out the idea, they reached out to her and she posted on one of our alumni pages. Um, so for me, it's it really is important to keep doing different things, to be inspired um, and to find, find ways. And like even... With this, like, I love building, but half my day, like, I love also reading about the latest and greatest in uh, physics or what's happening in new and new product development in sectors completely unrelated to uh, buildings, because you never know where that inspiration is going to come from. When when you're going to see something and you're like, oh, well, what if we did that? We could do that this way for what we're doing. And then it's like, oh my god! And then like, you like, it's that like, like, like they, all of a sudden the uh, the mist clears and you're like, there it is. There's the road. There's that path. Um, and to me, it's it's really important to to be multi multi I mean, but that's also I don't I don't want to say that in a way that makes anyone feel bad if they're not because like people are wired differently and we we kind of and it's about building that right team too and having the right the right people uh, to take on those different aspects. Mine happens to be the Going out, thinking about like talking to people in different fields, finding out what they're doing, seeing how we can apply that to what we're doing, and really having that that engagement and and being having an amazing team uh, in the R and D part department that I can be like, hey guys, have you thought about this? What what could this look like? And then let the real scientists actually do the hard work.
1: So. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Yeah, that the variety of experiences <laughs> and exposure to different things is. Important and so if someone's interested in sustainability, say for a career, and they're trying to develop their direction, maybe you know besides um, you you talked about some of the different experiences, you know, do you have maybe some other advice to give to them?
0: Um, yeah, reach out to people in the space that you're interested in. Like people, like one of the, I mean, the reason I went to Presidio, frankly, I thought I was going to be a lawyer up until the day I applied to Presidio, and the reason I applied was because my housemate uh, was a, at the time. Was at Presidio and I'd met the people, his classmates, and I knew they were the kind of people I wanted to be in community with. But it's so to me, it's about it's if someone's doing something cool that you're interested in, reach out to them, see if they'll hop on a call for thirty minutes. Let you like it's amazing how willing people are to talk about what they doing, what they do, especially if they enjoy it. Um, and and to me, that's a that's a wonderful way to to be build your network, to understand what, and, and especially if you do it without an ask. You just hey, I think you're what you're doing is really interesting. Can I ask you about it? like and just about learning and then all of a sudden you're on their radar so if that's a field in a, a career you want to pursue well maybe if then next time their company has a job posting you're like oh oh they got a job posting Let me let me reach out to that person and see find out more um or maybe they'll they'll you'll stick in their brain and they'll be like oh we don't have a job but this other company has this job that i think you could be perfect for and i mean it's just standard networking, like you would with any field. But I find sustainability people really do enjoy talking about what we do quite a bit. So, um, and for anyone interested in Mighty Buildings, uh, do check us out mightybuildings.com. Um, we are actually hiring as well, so check out careers.mightybuildings.com also. And yeah, really, really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Sam. I really appreciate this. So much great information, and so. Yeah, there's, there's so much great stuff going on uh, at Mighty Buildings. And, you know, I think, you know, the construction industry is just ripe for disrupt, disruption right now. And so, yeah, so that was, yeah, thanks thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate your time.
0: Oh, my, my pleasure. Really, really appreciate the opportunity. It was a, it was a privilege.
1: Thanks, everyone, for joining. I hope you found that interesting. You can find me on Instagram at Green and Grind, where I talk about sustainable living, healthy lifestyle, and green business. See you next week.